Welcome to Lions Radio Network, where the show takes you on a roaring adventure with entertaining and stimulating topics focusing on entertainment, sports, business, world news, along with many other topics. Whatever your interests are, you will find them right here on Lions Radio Network. Good morning. Um, my name is Ima Sumac Watkins, and you are listening to It's All Entertainment. And today uh, I'm hosting for Donna. Donna is not available today. She's um, not feeling well. And so this will be a very interesting uh, conversation. I have a really, really interesting person on today. Um, his name is Stan, uh, Stan Goldman, and he has a, a book by the name of Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother. Now, this is a fascinating story. Um, I was able to read uh, a lot on it, and it also has really great reviews by everyone. And I just want to give you guys a background on Stan. Uh, He's a journalist and news correspondent. Currently, he's a tenured professor of criminal law and evidence law at Loyola Law School here in Los Angeles, which I'm in LA, by the way. Uh, Earlier in his career, he covered the Scott Peterson, OJ Simpson, Michael Jackson, Timothy McBee, trials, as well as the Clinton impeachment, which would be kind of interesting of what's going on currently. Um, Working with CNBC, CBS, King World, and a decade working full-time for the Fox News Channel as their on-air legal correspondent and the network sole legal editor. Okay, He has appeared as an expert on Entertainment Tonight 25 times. Uh, he, O'Reilly 40 times, Hannity 20 times, and in trades such as People 36 times. In addition, he spent a couple of years as a special correspondent for the New York Daily News, which uh, published 90 of his stories. So we've got a real uh, interesting person on with us today. Good morning, Stan. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. You know, I have a lot of questions about this book because um, it is a story about your mother and her, um, how she basically got herself out of Auschwitz through a deal with Himmler that Himmler made with a, a businessman from Sweden, a Jewish businessman from Sweden. So just, I know that's a very basic, but it's a really, it's a real big page turner. I wasn't able to read all of it, but so please, uh, can you give me, or give us out a, you know, a synopsis? Well, even though the book is, is short and I wanted it to be short, um, you know, it's it's uh, about about 50 pages at the end or or end notes, um, uh, which you don't have to read. Um, I I didn't write it like a law professor that I am. I wrote it like I was still writing for the New York Daily News. So it's mm-hmm. it's written, I hope, very accessibly to people. And I wanted to make it a very tight and concise story, the way I used to write stories. Uh, it really, in a sense, combines and blends three books, and I've been very pleased that the reviewers have liked that. I was worried about that, but that seems to be the main thing they like about the book. I I blend the way my mother 
uh, and some other with her, women with her. It's this group of women that sort of travel through the entire Holocaust together through the German camps and the ghettos and the slave labor and working literally in Berlin at the height of the Allied bombing raids. These women are, are still kept together as a group because the, their lives keep getting spared by these Nazis who need workers. So there mm-hmm. were several times in which my mother's life was spared because she was, she and the, you know, the, this was a group like of, of seamstresses, you know, who could sew. And then when they didn't need sewers anymore, they, 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 they shipped them to a, a, a plant that, that allegedly made bomb mechanisms, uh, you know, to work on a certain sort of assembly line. So she kept getting spared. So I tell her story, but at the same time, I decided the story couldn't be told without explaining why the Nazis um, did all this, and specifically and generally. So who made the decisions that spared my mother from Auschwitz? Who made the decision that got her out of Berlin? You know, that sort of thing. And and so I blend that in. And I also blend in uh, because I thought it was needed, and apparently nobody's ever done this before. I didn't realize that when I was writing it. I blend in what each of these things had as an effect on her after the war. Because she lived many yes. years in America after the war and raised raised me, and uh, it it it's many ways blended in, page by page, the story of of what it was like for a survivor who's got this incredible will and to live, but is always sort of shadowed by by her you know her past and where yes. she'd been. Yes. Um, and and, as, and as I say early in the book, everybody thought my mother was she was like four foot eleven, and she was she had this very thick like. Very old-fashioned. You think of it now as a Yiddish accent, but she sounded like Yiddish all the time. People just thought she was this amusing character, uh, uh, unless you happen to be one of those few people who knew where she had been. You know that mm-hmm. she'd been in Auschwitz, she'd been in the in the labor camps, um, and she and she was, you know, for herself, uh, indomitable. Uh, for me, she was always terrified. She was always scared that something would happen to me. Although the Nazis had long been you know, defeated, there seemed to be that sort of danger always lurking behind every corner. And uh, she was a, uh, you know, a single mother because my father died when I was only 11. And uh, and she was always terrified for me. She was just convinced something was going to happen to me. I was like her reason for living. So all of that is blended into, and and I think maybe that's why it's a page turner. I, I, I tried to keep that as brief as possible and move back and forth between it. But uh, no, my mother, my mother was, I, was, I wouldn't have written a book just for that, but some years after she passed away, I discovered that one of the times she'd been spared, in fact, the last time, was, you know, and she didn't know this. I mean, I, I kind of stumbled across some evidence and then it took me a few years to lead through the thread just for myself. So one of the ways she was saved was so r- ridiculously, absurdly impossible and dramatic that I – I, I wrote a little article about it, and then, then I was approached and said, well, would you like to turn this article into a book? So I all right, I'll, so so like I, I turn the article into a book, uh, and that's, that, that's how the book ended up being written. It, it, was, it was like a mystery, your, your discovery of this, and, and the deals that were being made behind us. It's actually it's fascinating. Uh, I, yeah, the, the, um, I mean, the recept- my mother was spared. I, I hate to say saved. I think she was only saved one time, and that was she was mm-hmm. saved by. You mentioned it at the beginning of our talk by a, 
a Swedish businessman who was Jewish. Who, but and I'll talk about that in a minute. But she she was basically spared by the Germans. The Germans had no interest in saving her. The Nazis they they had interest in in getting what they could out of her and mm-hmm. some of the other you know prisoners. So they would they would use them as slave labor. You know, for a meal a day. You know, the the equivalent of you know you, you get lunch if you worked all day. That happened with my mother when she was in these ghettos, these these you know barbed wire surrounded uh, cities that that the Germans had created for the Jews, primarily in Eastern Europe, um, almost all in Eastern Europe. My mother was in two different ones in Poland, and then gets shipped to Auschwitz, and she's spared in those ghettos. They're shipping people off all the time, but she gets spared because she's she's a very skilled sewer because her mm-hmm. father was a tailor, so she'd worked with him. And they need her skill, so they use her small cog in the wheel, and then she gets she gets shipped off to Auschwitz, and you know turns out she gets spared again uh, from there, and she's she's in Berlin and manages to avoid the the bombs literally falling as as you know she's running for cover on a regular basis from the bombs that the Allies are dropping, and so she she keeps getting spared and 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 survives through force of will and a little bit of luck. Uh, and timing, and um, and the fact that she was very physically strong, it turns out she wouldn't didn't look it. But um, she and these other women she's with, and then and then at one of the times she gets spared, literally, is she saved? She is saved by. I mean, it, the story is so absurd. Uh, I've literally gotten a couple of very nice letters, emails from people who've read it, who said this is a this. I literally loved your novel. And uh, right. it's, it's you know maybe I should say it's a novel because I actually discovered recently that novels about about this subject about World War II sell a lot better than than uh, than nonfiction. But it, it, I didn't need to make anything up. The story is mm-hmm. is, is is so sort of absurd. Uh, I'll just give you a, a glimpse of part of it. And it's, uh, the, the the Nazi hierarchy often has sort of their own subordinates in various neutral countries. Um, mm-hmm. Where they could, you know, they could have, you know, feelers out for various things. And one of these Nazi subordinates is in Stockholm, Sweden, which is a neutral country, although it had connections in terms of supplying Germany with ore and things like that during the war. But it's it's a it's a neutral country, and this this Nazi underling of the SS is in Stockholm, and. The, 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 he gets this idea, as, as, as Nazis did, that if you want to try to work something out with the Allies when the war turned bad for the Germans, which it, which it had by this point in time, if the war turned bad, if you want to work something out with the Allies to maybe save yourself, you know, get, a, get a ceasefire, work something out, uh, you know, and, and, and Churchill's not willing to talk to you, which he wasn't allegedly, um, why not talk to a Jew? A Jewish businessman, because it's hard for people to understand today that the the Nazis, you know, a lot of them actually believe their own propaganda. They completely overestimated the influence of of Jews, who they saw as one vast group together. They weren't individual Jews; they were just the Jews. And mm-hmm. so, literally, if you can't if you can't talk to Eisenhower about a ceasefire, let's find a Jewish businessman who obviously mm-hmm. will have connections to the to the leaders of the West. Mm-hmm. And literally, there's a there's an airplane, a little airplane on the tarmac, you know, at the, at the Stockholm airport, got a swastika on it. It's a German plane, and this German 
SS underling uh, is, although he technically wasn't a member of the SS, but he was working for the head of the SS. He uh, it literally is about to leave to go visit his boss, the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, in Berlin. And two hours before the plane is due to take off, for the first time, this one particular Jewish businessman is approached about going with him. And this guy, it's, I mean, who is this guy? Is he like some famous negotiator, diplomat? Is he a, is he a well-known lawyer? Uh, does he have international connections? No, he is quite literally, and I'm not making this up, a furrier. You know, back then, you know, furs were a big business, especially yes. in Sweden where things were cold, and he sold yes. furs. And literally, he's approached, you know, and asked two hours before he's supposed to leave. You know, you know, it, you know will he like to? Would he go to Sweden? Would he go to Germany to Berlin and meet with Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, in a country where being a Jew alone is a capital offense? I mean, he couldn't, mm-hmm. you know. And he, you know, instead of going, <laughs> what am I suicidal? Uh, forget it. He goes, okay, and he gets on this plane <laughs> and they fly into Berlin. Um, no, 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 and and I'll know? just tell you one more, one more bit of this. When he gets off the plane, awaiting him are six SS officers in full formal regalia, uh, awaiting his arrival because word is, has has been received that he's that he's coming. And when he gets off the plane, they they stand at attention and like right out of a choreographed movie, they all go sig heil with their right arms stretched out in the air to this little Jewish businessman. And in response, and of course nobody knows what was going on in his head when he did this, but in response, he looks at them, he takes off his cap, and replies, "Good evening." Now, 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 uh, this is now this is really funny. I mean, just that it seems very surreal, just the scene yeah. itself. But now, did he know why he was going? Yes, yes, he knew. He 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 was he was not ignorant on this subject. He he had been a businessman who like. Um, several other members of the Jewish community in Sweden had been involved in trying to help Jewish refugees during the course of the war. In fact, he'd been one of the businessmen who had provided money, and I don't know if the listeners know about this incident, but the the Jews of Denmark, there were about 6,000 of them, were were basically smuggled out of the the country uh, into neutral countries when when the the Germans were entering, and there were about 6,000 of them, and they were smuggled out on boats. And, and this guy, this furrier, had been one of the people who had provided the money for the boats. So he had been involved, and he, he knew that he was going to talk, that Himmler wanted to talk to a Jew, and he was hoping to be able to negotiate saving. You know, he agreed to it because he thought he could negotiate saving some Jews, who were still obviously, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews still under the Nazis and the SS's control, because the SS... I don't know whether whether people remember or not. The SS was in, in complete charge of the camps, the mm-hmm. the concentration camps and those, and, and the even worse death camps. That's that's what the SS was in in part in charge of. And you know they they were the SS officers who ran it. You know for example. So he goes there knowing that he's, you know he's going to sit down. Without, whether he's ever going to get out alive, strikes me as a as a right. as a pretty a pretty long shot here. But uh, he flies in and. Uh, there are reports from eyewitnesses, you know, um, because some of the Nazis, three of the three of Himmler's direct aides, uh, wrote memoirs, which was very lucky for me. And in each of them, 
they describe a little bit, like a page, a page and a half, about this Jewish guy who comes in to meet with Himmler. And one of them was at the airport um, with uh, the one who'd flown in uh, with him, and he wrote his memoirs, and he describes the fact that, you know, that the, 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 because there's Allied bombings going on, it's like a, they, they have to sit at the airport for several hours waiting, you know, and, and over the loudspeakers are, um, you know, is, is the head of Nazi propaganda, Goebbels, who's giving this anti-Semitic tirade on the radio, which is being broadcast over the loudspeakers. And here, the only Jew in the, in the Berlin airport is sitting there, you know, waiting to meet with, in effect, the head executioner. And he's apparently, according to this, this German who writes his memoirs, just very calmly sitting there sort of, you know, preparing, you know, his thoughts and taking some notes on what he might say to Himmler. And, and, um, and then they, you know, then they have to do what turns out to be an incredibly treacherous drive um, to, to get to Himmler because it turns out the Allies are, are just bombing and bombing and bombing uh, Berlin. And the, the, the car they're in can't turn its lights on. They've got to, they try to go down some roads and they're blocked by debris. And, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's pretty treacherous before, before even the meeting is due to take place. It's, uh, it's a pretty remarkable story. And then the, it turned out, which I, I won't go into details on it, that not only does the meeting have some you know, personal consequence for me, but it turned out um, it, it had a real effect on the, on the, on the war. Uh, it really did. And I, I wrote the book because I was kind of flabbergasted by all the, all the connections and the consequences of this negotiation that took place between this little Jewish furrier and the, the arguably perhaps – the man who committed more was directly responsible for more mass murders than anybody in history at the time. Uh, you know, Heinrich Himmler. So uh, that, so, that's why so, I wrote the book. So Himmler, um, it, it's interesting because the, the what your your story uh, talks about is what the atmosphere was during that time in Germany because it seemed like it, everybody knew that the war was over it, with the exception of Hitler. I, I, I watched the other night another a film that was from Denmark actually that, that talked about those six – 6,000 Jews that they it's a Danish film also there was one yes and also but what I what I find interesting is that everybody knew that it was over like the the story of Rommel that was also a story that I was doing a review on and I had to watch this movie and and it was it was interesting because they didn't know what to do because they didn't know they they couldn't uh you know they could not escape, and they were all trying to find a way to get out. It was very interesting. So, it's I find it fascinating that here is Himmler, who's been doing all these atrocities throughout this all this time. He's trying to make a deal so that he can save himself, which I think yeah, well, is Himmler, a story Himmler in itself. Delusional. Yeah, it was I mean, you got to remember, delusion was not it was not exactly foreign, in my opinion, to the Nazis. I mean, they had right. they. I mean, their entire underpinnings of their anti-Semitism was that this, these Jews, who, by the way, never really reached more than maybe 1% of the population in Germany, for example, that these Jews were not only running all of the Western governments through their control of capitalists, uh, you know, the, the capitalist markets, the banks, etc., but they were also in charge of the, of the communist government. They were the Bolsheviks in, in Moscow. Um, well, you know, and these were some fairly – significantly educated people and you think about that and you go you know that sounds a little contradictory 
I mean, I can't quite figure out how they could be, you know, running all of those. But no, the Germans saw the Jews as as the power behind all the thrones. I mean, this is really, and in, by the way, it's it's not all that different than what Nazis feel today. The the the, the man who murdered the uh, eleven uh, eleven Jews in Pittsburgh uh, at the yep. synagogue. He uh, he uh, he believed. Uh, that this was part of the war against the Jews, that the Jews were responsible for caravans of Central Americans coming up through Mexico, invading the United States. And when, and when those, those marchers in Charlottesville were, were chanting over and over again, Jews will not replace us, you know, there weren't enough Jews to really replace them. What they're also talking about <laughs> is, I mean, because it's only 15, 16 million Jews in the entire world. We've never yet returned to the population that existed in the pre-war period, which is about 16 to 18 million. So there's only about, 16, about 15, 16 million Jews in the entire world. Um, but they're talking about, they're under the impression, they honestly seem to believe that the Jews control the world's populations of, of people of color. That you know we're, we're controlling the people who come from south of the border. We're controlling even, even um, uh, one might argue that they would say we're even controlling Muslim, uh, the Muslim nations, which is obviously insane. But uh, they believe that that we're going to be trying to replace them with people of color, uh, you know, because we have control, we have some sort of uh, mysterious control over those populations. So it's mm-hmm. it's not all that different today than it was then. It was just then, it, the power. Uh, was in the hands of these mm-hmm. virulent anti-Semites who who came to power in in Germany, um, and uh, and that's what Himmler Himmler was. He he believed this was the power, and he also believed that the world would completely understand why they had had to kill the Jews, because the Jews were the obvious enemies of Germany. And he honestly believed if he could if he could get to them and make some sense. Uh, you know, explain all this. The the allies would, of course, understand why they had to they had to kill the Jews because the Jews were that was defensive. The Jews were going to get them, so they had to get them first. Um, it, it really is. It, it it's hard Very to believe they he, they thought this way, but they did. Yes, yes, it's interesting. It's very very interesting. Um, it um, I mean, it does it. It's what's happening right now. I mean, as you had just stated, you know, there this belief is still there, and it's still people think about it. Everyone still has that. Not everyone, but there's certain groups of people who still think that, and they're not even, you know, white supremacists. They're just regular people out there who thought the same thing. I've heard it before, you know. So it's a very interesting uh, what what a thought can do, or what propaganda can do to um you know to influence people you know once it starts to become a belief but to to go to your mom i want to go over to your mom and and how you know what was it like you know growing up are you the only child by the way or is there other siblings I, no I, I was the only well that, that's part of the book my mother had two children before me who uh, who in 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 europe they were killed uh so uh. i was the my mother was about 39 when i was born she was already, you know, and they didn't have any more children after me, um, and I was surprised. She honestly thought, and she and my father thought after what she'd gone through in the war, the starvation, the, you know. Um, but she was, she was remarkably, uh, you know, powerful. Uh, she, you, you'd never guess it, uh, you know, if you just met her a she few times. She was small but, but mighty, huh? She, she was, she was, you know. There's a, there's a story uh, that was not told to me by her, but told to me by a woman 
um, who was with her during the war, who I talked to after my mother died, and she told me the story about how my mother had saved her life. They were both running from Allied bombings when they were in Berlin, and um, and it was a torrential rain at the same time, and literally this woman stepped into what she thought was a puddle as she was trying to run along beside my mother from the bombs, but it turns out it wasn't a puddle. It was a big ditch that was dug about eight feet deep that the, that uh, that actually had been dug as a as a as a kind of shelter from the bombs, but the rain was so ter- horrific that the 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 ditch had filled up, and all of a sudden this woman finds herself, you know, inexplicably drowning, you know, in this eight foot ditch of water in the middle of a Berlin factory, and then all of a sudden she feels this incredibly sharp pain in her head, and it's my mother literally sticking her, you know, four foot 11, you know, 90 pounds in America, God knows what she weighed there, pulling her out, you know, by her hair uh, from this ditch with one hand and, and, and dragging her to, uh, to the nearest shelter because the woman didn't, said she couldn't, she couldn't move. So she literally picks this woman up, who, by the way, it was about five inches taller than my mother um, and bigger, and she literally drags her uh, to shelter. And quite literally, according to the woman who I interviewed, um, my, you know, a bomb fell right where they had been uh, about a minute later. So if she, had, if she had laid there unable to move, which is what she said she was, and if my mother hadn't dragged her, she would have been blown up. So you know, this, is, this is the kind of you know, this internal strength and this physical strength is, the, is literally the only reason why people could survive. It, it took luck, yes. but... Even if you were lucky, you couldn't survive unless you had that kind of that kind of uh, you know in, internal strength as well as physical strength. Right, and also mental too, because you have to. You can't ever give up. But what was no. your what is what was your relationship with your mother? My, my 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 relationship with my mother is in part what the book is written about, and it was a very difficult relationship. Uh, it was very difficult. I mean. Uh, you know, you love your parents uh, regardless, and my mother had a lot, a lot to love about her. But it was a very, uh, um, it was a very difficult argument. Uh, she, uh, yeah, yeah, a relationship with lots of arguments. She was uh, obsessive. What was it like growing about, up? Uh, what was yeah, it growing up? She, she was up just overly. Her? She was just incredibly overly protective. I suspect I'm. I'm. I, I suspect. <laughs> I suspect Jews raised by Holocaust survivors aren't the only ones who have overprotective parents who overly shelter them. But my mother was uh, just always convinced that uh, if she didn't know exactly where I was, you know, I was in danger. Uh, and uh, I mean, well into into my middle age, into my 40s, you know, she would. <laughs> ha- I would have to call her and tell her where I was, and if she didn't hear from me for enough hours. You know, she we didn't panic. know where I was at night. She could be thrown into a, just a panic, you know. And um, uh, I mean, literally, it was it was it could be awful. I I tell that my my mother. I mean, the days when I lived with my mother, um, uh, people would uh, try to you know uh, reach me at uh, obviously at her apartment, and she'd pick up the phone and she'd insist that everybody give her their phone number, you know. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. And I finally okay. I give her the phone number, and then years later, sometimes people I hadn't spoken to in years, in the middle of the night, if she couldn't find me, she'd start calling all those numbers, two in the morning, three in the morning, waking these people up, uh, who some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't know. You know that, I mean, literally, that was what she was like. Uh, I mean, knew any longer, and uh, she just just you know start picking up the phone and dialing numbers. She accumulated all of them. It was her I way of keeping that. tabs on me. I could see that. You were. 
you were her only link. Her, yeah, right. I can see that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was very difficult to move out. It was very difficult when I had moved out to, uh, to stay. Uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> let me let me put right. it to you this way: uh, w- women aren't crazy about the fact that that you get a call at two in the morning and have to you know, take care of your mother. Uh, it doesn't always <laughs> it doesn't always work well for relationships. Now, Could now, account for the fact must... I'm still a bachelor. Uh, <laughs> that 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 could be as well. Does it? Did she? But she had time to be proud of you, of all your accomplishments, and all of uh, all of what you've done. Am I? When I started appearing on um, TV a lot, and well, I was a professor, but uh, you know, the I was starting to get work. Matter of fact, I this, during this period, I, I I was an alternating host of a of a one-hour show on CNBC they had hired me to do. Uh, it was on Saturday night at nine o'clock. But in one particular show I was on on CNBC. I was on it. I remember keeping a running count because every time I was on it, they'd give me back in those days, a videotape of my appearance. And I had 199 videotapes. Well, what are you going to do with all these videotapes of each appearance on the show? I was, you know, I was on 199 times. It was a good show to be on too, because it would get repeated on the weekend. So 199 appearances would turn into 400 appearances, sometimes 600 appearances, because sometimes they show it twice uh, back in those days. But I would give it to my mother. They were all these, these little blue containers, these videotapes were. And she had them stacked in her bedroom opposite from her bed. Uh, literally, there was a stack of what amounted to nearly 200 you know, videotapes. She'd just take it and put it in the stack, you know, proudly looking at the number of times I'd been on this one particular show. Uh, so, uh, yeah, she was. That must have brought a lot of comfort great to her. Proud in it. Yeah, yeah, it did mean it did mean a lot to her. Uh, uh, it it was a, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I was able to do it for her. Um, but uh, uh, well, what are you gonna, what are you going to say? It uh, right. you know, as I said, we had a complicated, as so many people do with their mothers, complicated relationship to say the least. Yeah, and and I would say you know someone coming who had gone through the Holocaust and having children, it's. You know, I've always wondered because they they've got major PTSD is what they call it now, um, just from surviving it. And then having your child, I could see how protective she would be. And, you know, you're her only link, you know, you're to to, you know, to something else outside of her, you know, her past. So yeah. I think so it's she a had very no family. Besi- she had no family besides me. They'd all been they'd oh, all been no wiped wonder. out. Her, hers really is. A story that I, I, you know, it's sort of like the end of Moby Dick when everyone is gone, and and the the narrator says only I am left to tell the story. Well, you know, she was of her entire family of eight brothers and eight, you know, she was the ninth of ten children. Everybody was gone, the nieces, the nephews. I mean, uh, she she literally was, you know, the last survivor. Um, and uh, I'm her only child, and if I, I didn't write the story, I didn't know who else would. So I. Right. Um, it it was not an easy decision, and I don't. And man, it took me eight years to do it. People think I'm kidding, and it, obviously I had a, I had a job, uh, you know, during the day. But it took four years to get together all the research because there were a lot of threads to be uh, to be found, uh, you know, with interviews and checking the archives and reading other people's books, and and then when I decided to take all the research and write it, it was. It was extraordinarily difficult for me to blend all the stories together so it would seem like it was easy and natural. At least that's what I'm hoping, and that's what the reviewers seem to have said. But it was Absolutely. a major effort to, to blend all of that so that you could have the three strains of a story of these stories flow together. 
Now, um, did you did did you learn? I'm sure that in doing all this research for this book, you have learned something. Um, what did you take away from all of this from this time from that time? And did you learn something new about the Holocaust that you did not know before or during that time of that well, war time? Well, I, I knew. You know, I obviously learned details. There's a lot of a lot of things, and I who thought I knew something about the subject, you know, was stunned by many of the of the stories and occurrences and things that had taken place that I had never heard before. You know, you read about 80 books or something on the subject, which I'm sure is the number of books alone I read doing the research uh, to, to put this together. You learn a lot. One thing I, 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 sort of, I think I believed before and was confirmed for me is that you know, and and now even re, even recently since the book came out, there have been some psychological psychiatric studies showing that um, the the human species is uh, um, very prone to to immediately hating people with differences, to be very distrustful. Obviously, this is somewhat Darwinian. You know, you're, there was mm-hmm. a danger in the community. If some stranger came in, they might be marauders. They might be, you know. Um, and, and so if somebody is different, we, we really we pick up on that difference. Uh, and there's, there's a small, it turns out to be a psychologically small um, step from, from this disdain to hatred to violence. And I, as I was doing the research, I, I reached the, the the somewhat pessimistic, but also I hope somewhat optimistic con- conclusion that we're not going to genetically uh, grow out of this in the next yeah. century or even millennium. This is something built into our DNA, uh, unless right. we change our very genes. We're we're not going to. It's not. It's a take epoch for this to change. But uh, that doesn't mean we all we have to have to accept it or live with it. We just have to be forever vigilant. We just have to realize it is there. there's not as big a gap between big talk and action when we're talking mm-hmm. about hatred of the others. It actually turns out to, in history, not be that enormous a step. So you can't just sit back and go, oh, you know, that guy in Hungary or wherever it might be is just talking. You know, or you know, it, it, there's there's not a, a a big step between that talk and and harm to others, and and that harm to others has obviously once would be too much, but it's far too often turned into mass atrocities, and sometimes mass atrocities even reach that level of genocide, uh, which yes. we still see. Uh, yes, so, we yeah, do. That, that's one thing. I, that's one thing I learned to always tell people to be vigilant and not just go, just not just ah, he's just talking. Right, right. That's a very, very. Um, I agree with you, and um, and you still see it. Unfortunate, you see it every day. You see it, and the people that that you least expect, or the group that you least expect, or you know, you don't know what's going on, and you read something just out of the blue, and yeah. So it's it's a it's an interesting uh, concept of how, of what, how this happens. And also, I learned that. Um, consequences matter in terms of deterrence. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, well, there's an international United Nations law against genocide, but there's still genocide. Yes, but you can, you can see, even in the story I tell about Heinrich Himmler, he was, he was willing to try to compromise and cut a deal um, to, that would result in some Jews being saved in order to try to 
what he thought might save himself in the post-war world. And uh, it, it, it's not that, that you know, having rules and deterrence and potential criminal liability hanging over the people's heads who commit atrocities. Uh, it isn't that you're going to stop atrocities, but it, it can have an effect on some. Maybe it's only an mm-hmm. effect on a small percentage, but a, if you can do something to save a small percentage, you know, that do it. Uh, yes. You know, just, yeah. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to we're running out of time, but I sure. but please everybody uh, go it, it is on Amazon. It, it is it's, on It's on Amazon. It's uh, the mm-hmm. publisher uh, also sold the audio rights to recorded books. There's a recorded book of it which I had to audition for, but they let me read. That's quite quite literally what happened. Uh it's uh, on Amazon. It's on uh, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble. It's I I I know it's in a few bookstores. Uh, there's one here in Pasadena. Romans in Los Angeles that carries it. There's a bookstore, uh, Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. that has it. I know a number of bookstores carry it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not self-published. It is a, it is a published book and with an audio book. And it's, uh, you can just go to Amazon now and uh, just look up Stan Goldman if you can't remember the, the title, which is uh, paraphrasing the line from Shakespeare. Uh, I guess, I guess Left the, to the, the mercy the of the pro- root stream. Right, right. Thank you. College professor Thank you. and me couldn't, couldn't stop the title. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there any is there any last words that you'd like to say to our audience before we go? Well, uh, I just as I said before, um, I I think the the book tells a story that is part of human part of human history, and it's been going on for thousands of years, and it's it's not leaving us. And I I really do think there's there's a lesson to be learned, but also if you if you really thought you, as I did, if you really think you understand what happened in the Holocaust, uh, you, you, you probably don't because even I, after reading about it for years, learned so much. And I hope I was able to concentrate into a very short number of pages, um, you know, aspects to it that, that, that will teach people because that's what I basically am as a reporter and a teacher. Thank you so much, Stan. We really appreciate you coming on the show. I know you're a busy person. Um, And for everybody out there, please go out and get this book. It is very fascinating. And everything that he's written on, I understand, is is fact-based. This is not a something that he put together. It is all based on fact, and all the places that he wrote about are there. And you can he did a lot of research. So this is a really great story about a woman with a lot of strength and uh, tenacity and survival, and also the time of what was going on back then in a different perspective. So thank you again, and until the next time, Donna Lyons will be with you, and. We'll say goodbye to everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stan, uh, Stan Goldman. I thank you very much for having me on. <laughs>